Okay, last time, uh, which was actually two weeks ago because I was traveling last week, but last time I mentioned how, I, I think I said that, that how much a portion in Ezekiel had really blessed me, and I should have said Jeremiah, because I, I had not prepared that, but it was actually Jeremiah. So let me just read those verses to you out of Jeremiah, so that you know the context of what I was talking about last time, if, if at all you even remember. But, but in Jeremiah chapter 1, early on in Jeremiah's ministry, he was a young man, and God was strengthening him through, through the Word of God. And he told Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 1.17, Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city, as a pillar of iron, as a wall of bronze, against the whole land, to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to its people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord." So the context of what I was talking about is how God empowers us. And as young people, sometimes we wonder, you know, can I really do this? And I'll tell you, there is never a time in your life where you're going to feel, I am the proper age, I am now adequate. If you're you're in college, you'll feel you're too young. If you're my age, you'll feel you're too old. And, And always, there is never the right time. Maybe a nanosecond, there is a transition point, but it's very short, and I don't remember when it was that I felt that I was really comfortable in that time period. And so what he says is, don't be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. If you allow yourself to be dismayed, you will be dismayed. And he says, I will make you like a fortified city, like a wall of bronze. I will empower you for what I have. Okay, so let's turn back now to Acts and see the context of all of this discussion. Acts chapter 9. And we were reading about the, the conversion of Paul, of Saul, when, when, and, and then he was later called Paul. And it says, uh, uh, let's start reading from verse 13 of Acts chapter 9. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. Now we're at Acts 9.15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by, prov- by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, so this is Saul's conversion. Saul was knocked to the ground, became blind. For three days he was blind. He ate nothing, he drank nothing, and he was in prayer. God sent a man, Ananias, and Paul had seen in a vision that a man named Ananias was going to come 
and was going to pray for him that he could regain his sight. He didn't know when that was going to take place. And Ananias is told by the Lord to go, and Ananias argues at first and says, Lord, are you sure? This is the guy who came to destroy us. And God says, go. I'm going to make him an instrument of mine. And so Ananias goes in verse, in verse 17, and he says to him, Brother Saul, so look how he addresses him. He addresses him as brother. God said, he is my chosen instrument, and immediately Ananias is, is says, I will go. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord which appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So now here is Saul. Remember, a Pharisee of Pharisees, one who was sent to persecute the, the Jewish believers, the ones who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, one who was sent to kill them. And he, has, he is a dignified man. He has a whole entourage with him. He has military forces with him. And here he is being prayed for by one of the very people that he came to persecute. He is probably in the home of not a, 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 a believing, a, not, not, a, not a Jew who's a believer in Jesus, but a Jew who he was intending to go to their home. And he's a dignified man, and here one who he was coming to persecute is come to lay his hands on him and pray. When you come into the body of Christ, when I come into the body of Christ, we are all one in Christ. We are one. There, there is no, there is no uh, clergy and laity. There, there, is, there is clarity. We are all one in Christ. We are all together in this. We all become one. We are all equal before God. That's why we can get on our knees together. Remember, lay your, 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 uh, uh, your pride, lay your dignity as far as that goes, as, as your position in the world. Lay that at the doorstep of the church before, before you walk in. We are all one in Christ. And... He is now receiving from the very man that he would have dragged into prison. And in fact, it says that Paul was a violent aggressor against the church, imprisoning those and having them tortured who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And here, one of these very people is coming and is praying for him and is baptizing him. He says, you better get up and get baptized. Imagine the humbling experience, this dignified man, being pushed underwater by just, just this layman, Ananias. This wasn't, you know, St. Peter coming and praying for Paul and, and, and baptizing him. And, oh, dignified Paul, we're so glad, you know, you've come to know the Lord. And, no, it's just some regular believer God sends. We never hear about Ananias again. God chose a very ordinary man. And the humility that is needed when we come into the body of Christ. And it's amazing, sometimes students feel too dignified to get baptized. Well, you know, my friends will see me. You don't have much dignity. You really don't at your age. You really don't. If, if you feel that you have a lot, it's in your own mind. Nobody's going to mind you being baptized except you yourself. Nobody's going to judge you in your position like, oh, look at them, they've never been baptized before. If they're judging you that way, they probably need some help. You need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. And he submitted himself to baptism. And then it says, immediately he regained his sight in verse 18. And he got up and he was baptized. He took food and he was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were in Damascus. And immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. So he immediately goes into preaching mode. 
And you say, well, no, no, no. You have to be matured before you talk, start talking about Jesus. No, as soon as you get saved, start talking about Jesus. It is a good thing. doesn't mean you have to get saved and become a pastor of a church the next day. In fact, the Scripture warns against that. But as far as proclaiming Jesus right away, that is a good thing to do. When a believer, when someone is a new believer, they get excited about many things. They're not deep in thought, but they are zealous. Let them go. Encourage them. Yes, go. You want to tell somebody about what Jesus did in your life? Go. Do it. Do it. Let them go. Immediately, Paul started proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Why of all things to proclaim? Why not just say, you know, God is love. God loves you. You know, he's going out saying, Jesus is the Son of God. A new believer has not learned all the terminology that we Christians use. And so they're far more able to relate to their unbelieving friends than, than people who've been believers, like for a gazillion years, like me. Because I use terminology, and you know, I talk about redemption and, 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 and propitiation and all these words that I hardly even know. But, and nobody understands me. But a new believer has all these friends who are unbelievers. Let them go and begin to share. Let them go and begin to talk. And Paul starts saying, He is the Son of God. Of all things to be saying. Why is this? Because to the Jews, they realized that the Messiah would be the Son of God. If you look in, in, in Psalm chapter 2, so keep your finger right there. And we're going to look at a lot of scriptures today, so... so uh, uh, Get your finger and look in, in, in turning page mode. Psalm chapter 2. It talks about God's Son. And you say, oh, come on, these Jews don't have a concept of God having a Son. Maybe in this day and age they don't, but they certainly did in that day and age because they read the Scriptures. In, in Psalm chapter 2 it says, in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. He who speaks to them he, he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Look what he says. He says, God is talking of his son. He says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the concept of a begotten son is very real within, within Jewish history and Jewish scripture. Look in Proverbs chapter 30. So after Psalm, book of Psalm comes book of Proverbs. Look in Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. And reading from verse 4. Who has ascended into the heavens and descended? Who has gathered the winds in his fists? Who has wrapped the, the waters in his garments? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. You see, so this concept of the Messiah being the Son of God is quite real. And it was quite real to the people of this day. And we know that from Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. The high priest Caiaphas. Caiaphas is, is, is interrogating Jesus. And, and he interrogates Jesus. He says in Matthew chapter 26 verse 63. Matthew 26, 63. Let's read from verse 62. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What are these men? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
So why is the high priest asking, are you the Son of God? Unless he has a concept that indeed the Messiah, the Messiah is to be the Son of God. And this is why Paul, who's addressing a a Jewish audience, says, he is the Son of God. This Jesus is the Son of God. As boldly as he could proclaim it, he is proclaiming it now. Immediately, look at the sequence. He gets saved, he immediately gets baptized, and he immediately starts preaching, Jesus is the Son of God. This is not a bad pattern to follow. Really, it is not. In verse 21, And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on, his, on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Paul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah, the one that God was going to send. God himself, who God referred to as his son, his only begotten. They say, isn't this the one who just... A week ago was destroying people in Jerusalem who had come here to bring people back back bound. When Jesus comes into a life, a life changes. There is nothing like this. There are fads A, B, C, and D that come into people's lives and they get involved in Eastern religions and Western religions and and all sorts of uh, of things and and, dancing and hypnotic things. Those don't change lives for good. What changes a life and turns it from being in a way that is going in a terrible path is to come to know Jesus. A life changes. I know what happened in my life. I know that the thoughts of suicide and anger and hatred were immediately dissipated in a large way. Not totally, but in large part when I got saved, when God was working in my life. And that doesn't mean that if you suffer with depression that you don't have Jesus. No, we all suffer with these sort of things. But I know what Jesus did in my life. When Jesus comes into a life, people change. There is nothing like it when Jesus comes in and invades a life. And when He does, when we welcome Him in and He starts filling us and we start learning, our lives change. There is nothing else like it. There is no better message that we can bring to man. You say, well, we need to get them educated. That's fine. But don't leave out Jesus. Well, you you need to feed the man that's hungry. That's fine, but don't leave out the message of the gospel. We must have this message of the gospel. You know, Mother Teresa, and I I don't have the exact quote with me, but she used to say that if all we do is feed the people and we don't bring to them the Word of God, it will have no lasting effect. We must bring... We can meet physical needs, but it must be coupled with the transforming work of Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 22, Paul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Okay, so it says when many days has elapsed. We don't know how many days that is from this passage. It says many days. turns out to be three years. You say, how do you know that? I'm going to show you how we know it from another portion of Scripture. This is the beautiful thing. This book is transforming to the life like nothing else 
like this book. But then also it builds upon different portions, and we'll look at it. But he says that then they wanted to kill him. And his disciples let him down in a basket through a hole in the wall. They let him down in a basket. Talk about the humiliation of this whole thing. I've got to get in a basket and be let down. You think, oh, this is, a, you know, this is a very glorious thing. No, this is a humiliating thing for a guy. You know, my students had to let me down in a basket out of my office window. <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't be, you know, oh, what a wonderful time. What a wonderful experience. I'd be humiliated. But, you know, you do this for the Lord. Things you've got to go through for the Lord. And God teaches us through this. In verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. This verse 31, remember, this is in great contradistinction to what was said in, in just, just earlier of, of how a persecution began in the beginning of Acts chapter 8. So the end of Acts chapter 7, Stephen got stoned and then it, Stephen was killed and then in Acts chapter 8, a great persecution arose. Saul was one of the great persecutors for some time period and now there's a season of, of no persecution and the church is being built up. And what you will see in your life what you will see throughout human history. Are there seasons of persecution? There are seasons of war. There are seasons of, of turmoil. There are seasons of depression. There are seasons of pain in our lives. And they are seasons. They come, they go, they pass. But it says that, that Saul was, went down to Jerusalem and he was in Jerusalem for a while. We don't know how long from this context here. We know from another passage of Scripture it was about two weeks. It was actually 15 days. And then when the Jews started trying to put him to death, he was sent away to, to uh, uh, Tarsus, to Caesarea. And let's turn to Galatians chapter 1. If you look in Galatians chapter 1, so, so you got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul is telling, giving his testimony, telling about his salvation story. And here we get a little bit more light from Paul's perspective of what was going on in his life. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestors Ancestral traditions. Okay, so in verse 13, it says, here Paul says that he was advancing, that he persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. How bad a persecutor was Paul? Beyond measure. You could not measure the amount of people that he had put in prison. Prison. The amount of persecution he caused upon people. The amount of pain and destruction. He had men... And women, it says, dragged into prison. You say, well, what happened to their kids? Forget their kids. They're abandoned. He didn't care. This man was violent against the church of God. 
violent against the church. This is how bad this man is. Paul is saying, I am really, really bad. I was so bad. Now in verse 15, but when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and I returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. So in verse 17, it says that we know that he was in Damascus. Remember, he was on the road to Damascus. He gets to Damascus. He gets saved. He starts preaching. But now, then it says, and then after many days... He went down to Jerusalem. That many days was three years. He went away into Arabia. Arabia is not Saudi Arabia like we think of it now. Arabia was this region that was around Damascus. He spent time with the Lord three years learning from the Lord Himself. And we know from another passage that, he would, that, that God Himself had just lifted Him up to the third heavens and would begin to teach Paul. He didn't learn this. And He tells us in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that He didn't learn this from men. God Himself, Jesus Himself, taught these things to Paul. And then he came back to Damascus, and then, he, then it says that, that uh, he went down to Jerusalem. How long was he in Jerusalem? Fifteen days. He only met Cephas, that's Peter, and in, in verse 19. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So the only apostles that he saw <coughs> were, were uh, Peter, <coughs> excuse me, were, were Peter and James, the brother of the Lord. Barnabas, who later became an apostle, he saw him too, but at that time he obviously wasn't an apostle because he says, the only people that I saw there that I became acquainted with were Cephas and with James. Now, Barnabas was called an apostle at that time. He wasn't including him because he was saying the, the folks that were in Jerusalem. The others, remember, wouldn't meet with him. They were afraid that he was faking it, that he wasn't really a disciple. Verse 20. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. That I went into the regions of, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. So it says that in, in verse, <clears throat> verse 21, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. This is Tarsus. This is the very region we had learned in Acts that he was sent to. After 15 days in Jerusalem, he goes up to Tarsus, and that's where his ministry was. Well, how long was he there before he ever returned to Jerusalem? He was there actually 14 years. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I came back to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached to you among the Gentiles. But I did so in private so that to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. So you see, what happens is he goes away for 14 years and then he comes back to Jerusalem. And what does he do? He takes the message of the gospel. He had been preaching the gospel back up in Damascus 17 years ago. 14 years he's preaching in in Cilicia. 14 years he's preaching in Cilicia. What does he do? Because of a revelation, it says in verse 2, he took the gospel and he brought it back to Jerusalem 
and he submitted it to the apostles in Jerusalem. The very gospel that he was preaching. Thank you. So he he takes this message and he starts submitting it to them. The gospel that he was preaching for 14 years in Cilicia, three years in Damascus, 17 years he had been preaching. He submits it, it says in verse 2. He says, I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now this is amazing. Think about this. Here is a man who is instructed by Jesus Christ himself and had been preaching for 17 years. He was no longer a brand new believer. He takes this gospel that he's preaching and brings it to the apostles in Jerusalem and says, am I doing this right? Have I been preaching the word properly? Do I understand the scriptures properly? What submission, what submission to the church of Christ, to the apostles that were there before him. This man really understood authority. He said, I submit to you this gospel for fear that I've been running in vain. Jesus said of the centurion who said, my slave is sick, will you come heal him? But you don't have to bother coming into my home to speak the word and he'll be healed because I'm a, a man under authority just like you are. I am also a man under authority and I speak the word to my servants and they do it. You just speak the word and it will be done. Jesus turned around and he turned to his disciples and he praised that Roman centurion. And by the way, every time a Roman centurion is spoken of in the New Testament, he's spoken of in a kindly manner. And Jesus says of that centurion, I have never seen such faith in all of Israel. Jesus equated understanding of authority to faith. I submit this class, this teaching that I give you, I submit to the pastor of my church. I submit it to Pastor Landrum. And I meet with the pastor and the leadership of the church several times a year, and I go over what I'm going over. And if they were to tell me, change what you're doing, I would change in a heartbeat. Because I am submitted to them. You say, well, you know, it appears to me you know more Scripture than, than the pastor. Well, if that's the case, it's of no matter. It's not a matter of who knows more. It is a matter of submission. It is a matter of understanding authority. Paul probably knew a lot more than Peter did at this stage. Because God used Paul to write a whole lot more of the New Testament than he did Peter. But he submitted it to Peter and to the other apostles. And he said, have I been running in vain? If you, as young people, and I want to give you something that's actionable, because if I just say to you, if I just tell young people, do better, that's not actionable. You don't know what to do. You say, okay, I'll do better. Do better what? Well, when you're doing zero, you multiply it ten times, you still got nothing. I want to give you something that you can act upon. And that is, learn submission to the body of Christ. Learn submission to the local church. Learn to become a member of the local church. It starts there. You say, well, I don't believe in membership. Membership is by participation. Membership comes by submission. 
If you're the local body of Christ that you are attending has no membership card to fill out just by attendance, you are a member, then that's fine. But if the local church that you're in has a one-year new believers class or new members class for those who are attending, who the, who, those who want to partake, you take part in that class. In this church, I think it's too easy. You just go up after church service and you fill out a little card and a watch care membership so that you don't even have to get rid of a membership from another church. It's simple. It is too easy. And you're a member. You do that. That is an act of submission. And then you say to the pastor, hey, my name is so-and-so. You know, I'm, I'm active on campus, so it's hard for me to participate here. Or I'm not active on campus. What can I do to help you out here? This is an act of submission. If you do this, you will be blessed in life. You say, why should I do it? So you'll be blessed. You don't do it, you'll miss out on a blessing. Every blessing in Scripture is coupled to some act of obedience. You show me a blessing in Scripture that's not coupled to an act of obedience because I've looked for it. I've never found it. And I've read this Bible from beginning to end many times. Every blessing is coupled to an act of obedience. You learn to submit to the body of Christ. Here is this great man, this dignified man, preaching Christ 17 years, taught of the Lord himself, and he submits it. He says, I'm afraid. Have I been running in vain? Would you verify this for me? Not, look, I've studied this portion. I've been studying this for two weeks. I really know it. Well, that's pretty disgusting. You take that and you submit it to somebody around you. You're teaching a Bible study for a crusade. Talk with the crusade leader. Here's, these are my thoughts on this. What do you think? If the crusade leader says, no, you need to correct yourself, don't say, well, I, I know more than you do. Just correct it. Just take their advice and follow their advice. Learn to walk in submission and God will bless you. Say, well, you know, the church just wants my bank account number. The church doesn't care about your bank account number. They've never asked me for my bank account number and really... They're not looking for your, you know, they don't expect that the college class is going to underwrite, you know, the phase four the, of the development of the church. They're not looking for that. They want the blessing of God in your life. Here's Paul learning to submit these things to the body of Christ. If Paul can do this, what about us? If Paul can do this, what about me? And the submission doesn't just stop here. You know, it goes, I have a chair of my department, meaning that there's a chairman, a chairperson that they're over all the department. They're a colleague of mine. In fact, it is a junior colleague of mine that is chair of the department. And so, in many ways, I am submitted to him. I am his senior in research. I am his senior in being a professor. But he has now been appointed chair of the department. You say, well, why wasn't I the appointed chair? I didn't want it. To me, that's a thankless position. That's, that's it. But he is appointed chair. I, I am submitted to him. And you know what I do is, and, and, and then above him I have a dean. I am submitted to her. And above her there's a provost, and above him is a president. And so, periodically, at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, I will get out I, I have some stationery. Yes, stationery. It's, it's, it's not electronic, it's a piece of paper. And, and I take out a pen, and I actually write a note thanking them for how wonderful it is to work at Rice University. And you say, well, you, you know, you're kissing up. No, I'm telling the truth. Rice is the best employer I have ever had. And I write to them, thank you for making this place so wonderful for me. And am I pleased about every aspect? No. But I, I'm pleased about a lot of aspects. And I write them a note, thank you. They don't know even know how to deal with it. I mean, nobody, no professor writes them. They get notes from professors, but it's not like that. 
But I'm submitted to them. And I appreciate what they do. And you know what happens? I'm blessed because of that. I think when it comes around to yearly raises, who sets my raise? The chair of the department, the dean, and it's approved by the provost and finally the president. And any one of them, as they go up the chain, can increase it or decrease what was set by the chair of the department. And I think that within all their ability, they want to keep the happy guy happy. You know, I don't like having complainers come to my office. I mean, people who come in and complain all the time are like, oh, I don't even want to see you. Just tell them to go away. Tell them I'm not in here today. You know, I don't want to see them anymore. But people who come in and, 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 and enjoy the place, do you want to see them? I, where did I learn the submission? It wasn't like I had a revelation from God. It was here in the Bible. If you learn submission in the work, the everyday work that you will do, you will be greatly blessed. You will be greatly blessed. These principles carry on into everyday life and you get a blessing. That is something that you can act upon. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the scriptures, for the word of God that teach us. That teach us your word so that we understand submission to the body of Christ. Submission that we understand what it is to obey you in the waters of baptism, what it is to speak of your word, to speak of the glories of God, that Jesus is the Son of God. Father, thank you for the demonstration of this man's life. And Father, I pray for these young people, that you so work in their lives that they would learn what it is to submit, to serve in the body of Christ, so that they would have good lives and be greatly blessed so that they would find good spouses in your time after your own choosing, and that from them they would have good families that honor you, children that love your name. And Father, I pray that you would start it here at this stage in their lives, they would learn these concepts. Father, your blessing, I pray, be upon them. May they walk according to your word. In the name of Jesus, amen.